Thank you, Jess. My name is Kevin. I get to be one of the pastors here, and it's my call to preach from this text that Jessica's read for us. It's my first time preaching from this refurbished table. I have to say, I was kind of hoping to expect to find some cured meats and cheeses, <laughs> maybe some olives up here. Uh, what comes to mind when you hear of the authorities? When you hear the word authority or the authorities, what do you think of? Some of you bristled and shuddered a little bit when I spoke that out. You may think of the police or judges who are standing ready to uh, throw you in, uh, the, in prison. You know, stop in the name of the law, with the authority of the law. Some of you may think of the government who are just passing laws that are intended to make your life more difficult. You think of middle management bureaucrats who are putting you in your place. Some of us have lived in times and places where the authorities were the nameless, faceless thugs that knocked at your door in the middle of the night to haul you away, answering to no one. We think of authorities, we think of those with power, usually backed up by an army, using force and violence, using positional authority, authority that's by right of the position that they hold. Or sometimes we think of moral authority, those who have the integrity and the credibility to lead. Sometimes we think of the word authority in terms of expertise. You know, Professor Smith is the leading authority on reckless behavior of teenage boys. What do we mean when we say they're the authority on that subject matter? That no one has studied more than them. That's not that they know everything there is to know about that subject area, but they're, they're the authority that they have, they've studied more than anyone else. And so maybe they've written the textbook, the kind of definitive textbook, at least at the time, on that issue. So as we return now as a congregation to Matthew's Gospel, we're in chapter 9, we dive back into a section in chapters 8 and 9 that are talking about Jesus' authority. The, the section that precedes chapter 8 and 9 is chapters 5 through 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus um, explains what it means for, to live in the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus went around to the towns and villages and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. And then in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he explains what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven draws near, when the kingdom of heaven breaks in to the kingdoms of this world. What is that, what does life in that kingdom look like? And then there is a if you just, even if you turn back, you can see at the end of Matthew chapter 7 that there was a commentary that the crowds who were listening in on Jesus' teaching said that they were amazed, they were astonished and amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. That he taught with authority. So the in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often said, you know, you've heard that it was said this, but I say to you that. You've heard what was said eye for an eye, but I say to you, love your enemies. 
You've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, I, the authoritative I, say to you, this is the correct interpretation. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke as one who has the authority to decide whether or not someone can enter the kingdom of heaven. That he, was going, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Many says, many will come to me and say, didn't I do this and that? Didn't I do all kinds of things in your name? And he's like, depart from me. I didn't know you. You are not welcome in the kingdom. And others are welcome. That he is the one with authority over that. And then, so then we move into chapters 8 and 9, where Matthew is uh, describing the authority of Jesus in his ministry on earth. I've, to, I've kind of titled this section, Kingdom Ministry, but really, if I, because it's short, but if I was expanded, it would be something along the lines of the authority of Jesus in kingdom ministry. Because the theme that runs throughout this is the authority of Jesus. That he taught with authority, and then he has authority over disease, that a leper came to him, said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He says, I'm willing, be clean. And then a centurion, a, a, a soldier, a, a Roman soldier, who is in charge of a hundred other soldiers, comes and says, I have a servant who is not well. And Jesus says, all right, let's go. And the centurion says, no, 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 I know how authority works. I'm a man under authority, and I also have servants under me. I say go, and they go. I, they, I say come, and they come. I get how authority works, Jesus. Just say the word, and my servant will be well. And, and, and Jesus says, that, what faith, amazing faith of the centurion, that you know the authority that I have over disease. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. We see that Jesus has, in Matthew chapter 8, has authority over disciples, that he can say, come and follow me. He has authority over the elements. There's wind and waves that obey Jesus. And he has authority over demons. That's where we ended off. It was a couple months ago, but that's where we ended off. As Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee into a non-Jewish region. If you look at uh, the map here, he is in uh, the area of Gadara, which is just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And he has authority over demons. Remember these demon-possessed men. And Jesus casts these demons out of the men. And the demons are like, "Uh, can we go into the pigs? And he's like, yeah, you can go into the pigs. Um, Jesus had authority over the demons. So he has authority over disease. He has authority over disciples. He has authority over the elements. He has authority over demons. So Matthew's describing the kind of authority that Jesus has, what it's like and what it accomplishes. It's power that has no army behind it. It's force that has no violence, but rather it's driven by freedom and love. And so when the kingdom of heaven comes near, again, remember, Jesus is going around preaching the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has drawn near. Believe the good news of the kingdom. And so he's clarifying and deepening for us our understanding of what it means to recognize the authority of King Jesus. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven, that he's your king, that he has authority over us. And so now we come to Matthew 9, our passage for this morning. He got into the boat 
again, from the, from the area of Gadara, and he crosses back over. It says he crossed over. It means he crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and he returned to his own town. His own town is the town of Capernaum. So that's on the northwest, or basically the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That's Jesus' home base for ministry in the region of Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. You can see Nazareth on the map. Um, but his home base for ministry was in the town of Capernaum. So that's where he crosses over, and he's back in Jewish territory now. Verse 2, then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Um, Matthew, the characteristic of Matthew's gospel is that he leaves out some details. He's always shorter than some of the other gospel writers when he's talking about a similar, the same event. There's a little detail that Matthew leaves out. Um, you might know what it is. You can read about it in Mark and Luke's gospel, that Jesus was teaching in a house. It was so crowded in the house, the, people, the, the friends who were bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus couldn't get close, and so they climbed the, the roof, tore a, tore a hole in the roof, and lowered the man on a stretcher down in front of Jesus. Matthew evidently didn't think that was an important enough detail to include, um, but uh, he wants to focus in on something else. But that, this is the same story as you can, you know, that's the famous story of lowering, making a hole in the roof, ruining someone's house um, in order to get close to Jesus. Seeing their faith, how did Jesus see their faith? Isn't faith invisible? Faith is visible through actions. You demonstrate what you truly believe by how you live. What you truly believe to be true is always demonstrated in how you live. Their deliberate coming to Jesus demonstrated visibly the invisible reality of that they trusted in Jesus, that they believed in him. Faith is the entry to the kingdom of heaven. That is how you enter the kingdom, is by believing in the authority, trusting in the authority of Jesus. So I want us to imagine this scenario now. Some people who have a friend who is paralyzed, and they decide, let's get this friend to Jesus. Let's get him, as, let's get this guy to Jesus. Jesus has a reputation. Let's, let's bring him, let's get him in front of Jesus. Now, what are they hoping for? What are they wanting? What are they expecting, even? Everyone is, every, the crowd around, the friends, the man on the stretcher, everyone's expecting miracle. Healing. Jesus is going to restore his body, allow him to walk and move and provide for his family again. That's what's on everyone's mind. But Jesus says, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. It's kind of like going trick-or-treating. You knock on the door, Hold open your bag. Trick or treat. And they give you the apple. Right? You ever 
Did you ever have that house as a kid? I had a kid, there was, always, there was always one house. It seemed like to be a different house, or else we'd skip that house every year. But there's always someone who's given you an apple. Like, did you not understand the social contract that goes on on, on Halloween? That I come, I'm in a, some sort of last-minute, put-together costume, I'm going to come and say trick-or-treat, and you're going to give me something that rots my teeth. That's the contract that we have. That's the understanding. I, don't, I didn't come for fruit and vegetables. I came for candy or chocolate. Don't you think that's what these friends are thinking? Like, we, we went through all the trouble of tearing a hole in the roof, Jesus. We didn't come for forgiveness of sins. We came for healing. Like, that's what we came for. That's what we need. What this guy needs isn't Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. What this guy needs is Jesus saying, get up and walk, you are well. Or is it? Or is it? I think Jesus is saying, while you think you've got a bigger problem, there's a bigger problem. There's a deeper problem. There are deeper issues than your suffering. That there are more profound problems than your paralysis. Jesus is radical. The word radical means you get to the root. Radix means get to the root of the issue. He gets to the root. See, the problem... The problem in this world is not circumstantial. The problems in our lives are not ultimately circumstantial. You see, all of our pain and struggles and suffering and conflicts are all due to sin, to the presence of sin in this world. And so while this man could be saying, if only I could walk again, then everything would be right and good in my life, it's only natural to think that. Health and strength and well-being are good and right desires, and Jesus actually is concerned about them. But there's deeper issues in this world. There's deeper issues in my life and in your life. You know, you, you look around at the world that we live in, and it's a mess. It always has been. It's a mess. Seeking humanitarian and political solution to what's wrong with the world is good, but it's not deep enough. It's only treating the symptoms and not the cause. Alleviating suffering, alleviating sickness and poverty, good, but not deep enough. You see, no political or economic order is going to wipe out corruption or hatred or self-centeredness. And so economic injustice and sickness and sufferings are but symptoms of a deeper problem in this world. And only Jesus came to do more than to treat symptoms, but to transform and to heal the very cause of all suffering and evil in this world. You know, what's the solution to the Middle East? It's not, more, it's not more bombs. Hatred will never drive out hatred. Violence will never stop violence. 
It's the kingdom of heaven breaking in to deal with the root cause. To deal with the root of sin is the only hope for this world. And you can think about that on the geopolitical level and the social level, but you can also think of it personally. Like that what is wrong with us and the problems we face ultimately find their root in sin. Sin is rebellion against God, giving allegiance to spiritual forces that are opposed to God. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is enslaving. Sin is living at enmity with the God who made us and who loves us. Declaring war on God and firing the first shot. Now this man likely believed he was a great sinner. There was a a connection in, in Jewish thought and theology at the time between sin and permanent physical ailments. You read about that in like John chapter 9. There's a man who's been born blind. And, and people are saying to Jesus, like, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Like, what's, someone sinned. Like, someone's, someone's at fault here. Personal sin. Someone, someone caused this. Who, who was it? Him or his parents? Two options. And Jesus is like, no, neither. It's due to sin. All suffering and physical ailments are due to sin in the presence of sin in the world, but it's not always some specific and personal sin. Jesus is saying there's deeper problems than the suffering that you face. And sometimes it's like, let's be honest, sometimes we're bringing our request to Jesus, to God, to our Father in heaven, and it feels like he's given us apples on Halloween. I mean, forgiveness of sins is great and all, God, but actually what I want is this. I know you've forgiven me. I know heaven's my home. I, but actually, I just need you to intervene here. Ever feel that? Ever feel that? And what Jesus is saying is, trust me for the deepest issues of your life. The deepest issues of your life is to deal with sin. to deal with sin. But you got to love the words of Jesus. Have courage, son. Jesus, you're transforming his identity. It's like, take heart, my son. Be encouraged. Have courage. It's a word that, that word, have courage, it's translated here, it's a word that means like, strengthen your emotions. I want to give you hope for despair. I want to give you courage in place of fear. Don't carry this weight anymore. You probably think that you're an outcast, that you're cursed because you're paralyzed. In fact, that's like he's described in, in identity language, he's a paralytic. Your suffering defines you. And Jesus says, have courage. Take heart, son. Son. Not paralytic, not outcast, not cursed one. We're family. You're loved by God. You're his. He transforms his identity. He takes away all his sin. 
Your sins are being forgiven. Right here, right now, your sins forgiven. Every benefit of the kingdom of heaven flows from this, the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus came into the world. Do you remember the story, uh, Joseph, Jesus, um, father, as it was thought on earth, finds out Mary's pregnant, somewhat disconcerting about that. An angel comes to him in a dream and says, Matthew one twenty one. he says, you're going to name him, give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. That's why he came. Or John in his, his first epistle, First John says, you know that he, Jesus, was revealed. He came so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. And later on in chapter 4, he says, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to deal, to take away all our sin. You see, the world wants to transform our identity. The world wants to take away guilt, but it does that by recategorizing, by explaining away, by giving you a burden to create and craft your own identity apart from anything and anyone else. It makes sense. We're hardwired for the kingdom of heaven. We were made to live in the kingdom of heaven. And so we're, our world is just desperately trying to live into the kingdom without the king, but with, to live in that kingdom. And Jesus has the authority to do it, to, to get at the root and to do more than just Band-Aid treatments. But the religious leaders say he's blaspheming. Some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Blaspheming. Blaspheming means to demean God by claiming to do what only God can do. It's like dragging God down to my level. That's blasphemy. It's like pretending that God is just like me. Demeaning God. In a sense, they're right, though. Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. I have a level of empathy for the scribes here. They're right. Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. To say, your sins are forgiven on his own authority is, doing, is claiming, first of all, that all sin is against, against him. Psalm 51 says, against you, you alone have I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's David who sinned against other people. But he's saying, ultimately, God, all my sin is against you. And God says in Isaiah 43, he says, I'm the one, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake. Remember your sins no more. God is the only one who can forgive sins because all sin is against him as our creator and maker. He is claiming to do something that only God can do. You know, if Billy steals Tommy's Halloween candy, I can't go to that thief Billy and say, I forgive you because he didn't steal my candy. Only Tommy can say to Billy, I forgive you. This is a claim of divine authority. Jesus' claim in saying your sins are forgiven is a claim of divinity. Your sins are being forgiven. I'm doing it right here, right now, on my own authority. For which is easier? Which is easier, he says, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? It's a good question. Which is easier? 
To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? If you're like me, you're like, oh yeah, talk is cheap. It's easy to say you're forgiven because how do you verify it? How do I know that my sins are actually forgiven? Anyone can say it and you're no, there's no way of knowing if it's true. But the genius in the question is that if Jesus had just blasphemed God, how could God then give him the authority to heal? Right? If Jesus has just blasphemed God, he's under God's curse, would God then give him the ability to heal this man? He says, but so that you may know, he does the thing that can be verified, that can be seen. He does the harder thing. Get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. But which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, you need to be the savior of the world. To, be, to say your sins are forgiven and for it to happen, you need to bear the consequences of all human sin. And it's even right here that the shadow of the cross begins to fall across the path of Jesus. Because in order to say your sins are forgiven, he has to die for the sins of all humanity. He has to bear the wrath of God against all sin. Bear the judgment of God against all sin. He's got to take it all on. Even as the conflict with religious authorities who would orchestrate the cross begins right here and right right now. Which is easier? To heal him or to go to the cross and bear the judgment of God against all sin? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Friends, he wants you to know this morning he has the authority to forgive sin. Any sin, all sin, that sin that you are deeply ashamed of, that sin that keeps you up at night, that sin you hope no one ever finds out about, he wants you to know that he has the authority to forgive it. All of your sins, you do not need to live in shame. Your darkest and deepest secret, you do not need to carry the burden of guilt any longer. You do not need to create an identity apart from him. You can come to him. He'll transform your identity to a dearly loved child, and he will take away all your sins. He has the authority because of his death on the cross. And so I can say to you today, not on my own authority, but on the authority of Jesus and on his word, that he has the authority to forgive your sin today. He has the ability to heal you at the heart level. He has the ability to, to, to heal that most pressing issue in your life, that issue of sin, and to give you new courage, to give you new joy, new freedom. He has the authority because if we confess our sins, 1 John says that he is faithful 
and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's just to do it. It would be unjust for him not to do it because all of our sin has been placed on Jesus. And so for him not to forgive you of your sin would mean that he's punishing it twice, that he's paying for it twice. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we're celebrating communion this morning because the Father in heaven wants you to know that all authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus, including the authority to forgive you of your sin, to take it all away, to cast it in the depths of the sea, and to remember it no more. It will never be spoken of again. It will never be an issue between you and God again. Why? Because Jesus has taken it. That is, his body was broken for us, and his blood was poured out for us. It was to forgive all of our sins. And we can't hear that enough. That if you would come to Jesus and to to trust in his authority, he will forgive all of your sins. You don't have to pay him back. You don't have to keep making penance. You don't have to try to earn earn your way into the Father's good books. Jesus has done it for you. He has the authority and he wants you to know it so that you would know that he has the authority to forgive all of your sin so that you can live in freedom so you can live unburdened so that you can live with your heart healed at the deepest level that's the only hope for our world that's the only hope for us and so we're going to celebrate communion together now jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread he broke it and said this is my body which is broken for you and he took some wine, and he poured it out, and he says, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, as often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of my death. Do this remembering that that my death is the reason that your sins can be forgiven. Do this in faith. And God wants to say to you today that just as surely as you're eating some bread and surely as you're drinking some juice, so sure it is that all of your sins have been cast away into a sea of eternal forgetfulness where you'll, they'll never be brought up again, that you can be free. I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward. The way, um, and what we'll do is we'll have two people in front of each of the four sections of seats, and you'll come forward uh, down either this aisle or this aisle, and if you're in this section right here, you'll be on the right side of the aisle, you'll turn right, come to the person in front of your aisle, take a a piece of bread and a cup, and return to your seat, all right, same thing, you're going to be returning down the middle aisle or the outside aisles, depending on where you sit, and um, take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, And we will participate all together once we've all received. Uh, Jesus says that we ought to examine ourselves whether we can participate. This is for followers of Jesus, those who have come to him. Those who have come to trust in his authority to forgive us of all sin. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not come to that place of placing your faith in Jesus, we'd invite you to just stay in your seat and uh, to contemplate. We'd love to walk with you to a place of of faith in Jesus. There's no greater joy that we have than to see people come and put their trust in 
uh, in Jesus as well. We're going to be singing some songs uh, while, while we come forward to receive. There is a gluten-free option of uh, bread as well, so you know. Let's pray together. Father, as we participate in communion now, would you strengthen our faith in your authority to forgive us of all sins? May we just bring and lay all of our stuff, all of our failings, all of our shame, lay it at the foot of the cross, knowing that it has been dealt with fully and finally. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for our sins. We remember you. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son on this mission of love and forgiveness. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here with us to strengthen our faith, to bring comfort and new joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.